0: In this, again, seems like uh, on a national community scale, there's a a challenge to the the peace of our nation. There's a passage I want to start with and then look at another passage and then tie back into. In the Beatitudes, in uh, Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And I think that could summarize what we've talked about the last two weeks. And in a sense this week, tying it all up is that God's a peacemaker. If, if peace, people who are peacemakers are going to be called sons of God, then that must imply that God, them being his son, those sons and daughters must be like their father in heaven who's a peacemaker. And over and over in the Bible it says God's a God of peace. And it says, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The gospel, over and over and over in the New Testament, is the gospel of peace. The peace must be a pretty significant part of what it means uh, for the world. And, you know, we live in a time where peace is, uh, is not a commodity that, that you turn around every corner and experience and find. And so I want to talk about how to be a peacemaker today, because the, the challenge of peacemaking is in the doing, right? It's not in the idea, because like the last couple of weeks, I've had multiple people tell me, you got me. I want to buy into this, this peacemaking, this reconciliation thing. This really seems like what God wants, but it seems to be a challenge to get there. And so I, I touched on something at the end of the talk last week, and I want to explore it again and that is, what does it really look like to be a peacemaker? How do you move into peacemaking in a way that actually brings about this reconciliation and harmony that God wants? Because remember we talked about last week, that I didn't put it this way, but a lot of people, alienation and estrangement is kind of normal, and it's, it's the new normal. And what people are shooting for is just, let's just have a truce. That's, that's better than shooting at each other. Let's just have a truce. But God's vision for what our lives are meant to be is not a truce. It is reconciliation. It is real peace. And it's a costly thing. God's just not trying to keep the warring parties apart so they don't kill each other. What the gospel says is that reconciliation means God, the the word literally means in the Greek, to take the enmity away from, take alienation away from, and bring harmony. So we're not just trying to have an absence of conflict, we're trying to have harmony. So how do you achieve that? Most people have, have, have made attempts after a conflict Or in a situation where people are alienated, say, in a workplace or socially or a family. They've tried to achieve harmony again. And it's so difficult that people just give up. And I think a lot of times we don't realize how costly it is. And then we don't realize how much the gospel itself is the picture of how we're supposed to move forward. And so I want you to look in uh, Acts chapter 10. It's a picture of peacemaking. Now, you might not have thought of this before as a kind of peacemaking, this story, because most of the time we read it and we don't see that peacemaking is at the center of this story. But there's four things that you have to do, and I I mentioned them last week. If we're going to have peace between races, if we're going to have peace between nations, if we're going to have peace in a family, if you're going to have peace in your heart, If you're going to have peace with a friend, if there's been alienation, there's four things that that someone has to do. The first thing is, you have to value the other party. You have to value them. Number two, after you value them, you have to look at them and say, I want to identify with this person. So you value them, then you begin to identify with them. Then the third thing is you begin to fight for them, not with them, all right? That's an important word to put in there. No more fighting with, fight for. So you value, you identify with them, you fight for them, and then you unite with them. You unite with them. And in this story, you're going to see, this the story of a man named Peter, and it, it's how Peter becomes a peacemaker, Now, Peter's sharing the gospel here, but you have to understand at the heart of this story is a Jew is going to reconcile with a Gentile, not just a Gentile. And we talked about how Jews and Gentiles were really alienated in the ancient world. This is not just a Gentile. He's a Roman Gentile. He's a Roman Gentile soldier. He's a commanding Roman Gentile soldier in the city that is the the in in the jewish part of the world was like the military center for the roman army and so peter is going to go into the enemy's camp and he's going to make peace with a soldier of the enemy and you're going to see he does these four things god takes him through these steps he learns to value cornelius this soldier he learns to identify with the, with cornelius he learns to fight for cornelius and then he learns to unite with cornelius so let's read this story and i'll make a comment as we move along uh, if, you, if it isn't obvious to you i'll just make a comment about it so acts chapter 10 verse 1 at caesarea And it was named for Caesar, so it was a community named for Caesar, just just outside Israel. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. In other words, he was a ranking Roman soldier. A centurion of what was known as the Italian Regiment, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, what is it, Lord, he asked. He stared at him in fear. The angel said, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up to as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea." When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now, just think for a second here. You're going to see God is involved in this story. This isn't an accident. God sends an angel to Cornelius to start the story moving. God speaks to Peter gives him a vision. Then, he, then the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter again. Then you're going to go to Quincy's household. Peter's sharing the gospel. God shows up again in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. God is involved in this whole thing from beginning to end, top to bottom, front to back, inside out. God is in to peace. He's in the peacemaking. He's into us, his sons and daughters, being peacemakers. Peter is learning how to be a peacemaker in this. So the the story picks up, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. So they're coming into the city. Peter's in the city on a roof praying. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. I wonder if he saw like the strings, like in a bad science fiction movie. You know, you ever see those, like the the flying saucer came in, you could see the strings holding it, you know, before they had computer generated stuff. Did you see that? I don't know. I watch a lot of movies. I think about that stuff. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. These are unclean uh, creatures that that Jews, because they uh, observe kosher, were not supposed to have anything to do with. So bad stuff. Peter immediately in his dream, he just backs away, right? That's what a good Jew would do. I'm not touching that stuff, you know. I'm not eating bacon. I'm not eating, you know, anything like this. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Because Peter's hungry. All right? There's a desire. Now I want you to see something here. We have a desire in our heart that God put in us. Desire is not a bad thing. Desire is a gift. It is misdirected desire that's the problem. Your desire can tell you a lot about What you need in your life. When I want something that's wrong, I don't have to hate my desire, even though that's what Buddhism teaches. Your desire is the problem. No, it's not the problem. It's where you're directing your desire that's the problem. We need to direct our desire towards what can satisfy it, which is God Himself. And Peter had this hunger in his heart. He wanted something, he was hungry. Deep inside us, we want to be related to people. We are made by God to love. The two things you can say about human beings that are the most fundamentally true about us: we're made in our, we reflect the image of God. We're lovers and we're makers. We make things, and we're made to love. We're made for one another. We're not made for the divisions and alienation. And barriers and walls, that's unnatural. And some of the greatest stories are stories about how people longed for, like Romeo and Juliet, it's a tragedy. People longed, two, people, two young people longed for one another, but there was a wall and a barrier there. So the greatest stories of our civilization are about people longing for things that, the, that barriers told them they couldn't have. Inappropriate barriers. So Peter's hungry. This voice says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Something inside Peter. See, Peter is staying at the tanner's house. You know what a tanner was? A tanner was someone who who dealt with dead animals. All kinds of dead animals. Peter had already started hanging around with someone who did some things that that would make him ceremonially unclean. He knew this wasn't. The kosher law had been abolished in Christ. Yet... He was still sort of kind of following it, kind of not following it. Simon the Tanner, and being in his house, Simon would have been ceremonially defiled over and over by dealing with dead things and animals that he shouldn't touch, being a Jew. Peter was able to overcome that, but he wasn't able to yet to see through this thing he had in his head about gentiles and so God's going to start working on his heart. So when the voice says get up Peter kill and eat surely not lord Now we got to see this. We do it all the time. No lord No lord That I mean a light should go off in the idiot lights of your soul that goes there's something wrong with me saying to god no lord if you're lord i shouldn't say no to you there's a contradiction again something should be going off in in peter's heart going this isn't quite the way it's supposed to work when god speaks to me i'm supposed to say yes lord but he goes no lord the voice spoke back to him a second time, Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. So, God gives Peter a reason for what he told him to do. It should just be enough for us to hear from God and do it. We should trust him, period. But God in his graciousness and his condescension towards us, he is, and I don't mean a bad condescension, he Speaks like uh, uh, Martin Luther used to say, God lisps to us. You know how he talked to a baby? Oh, do, 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 do. You know, God has to talk to us that way. We're, you know, we're infants. And, but God does that in his love. He's willing to speak to us in a way we can hear it and we can understand it. You see that? There's a kindness in this. Peter says, No, Lord. Jesus could have said, Hold on. That's it. Peter's life's over right there. (laughs) No, Lord. But he doesn't do that. He gives Peter a reason. Now, this happens three times. While Peter was still, oh, excuse me. So Peter was wondering about this. While he was wondering, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, now here's the Holy Spirit speaking, okay? Angel, vision, Holy Spirit speaks clearly to Peter. Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up. (laughs) He still hasn't gotten up. He says, get up, kill and eat. He's still not doing it, right? Get up, go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. So, Peter, this is is how it works. The process works this way. Reconciliation happens when we start moving. We start moving towards the people from whom we're alienated or where the problem is. So, Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why'd you come? He still doesn't understand what's going on, right? So he's trying to fact find. The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion, He's a righteous and God-fearing man. Now that's a term, uh, uh, th- that term in the Greek, is, it means he's a proselyte. He's a Jew, I mean, he's a non-Jew who wants to worship the one true God of Israel. And he, the, the only step that he's not gone through in terms of converting to Israel to, to the Jewish faith is he, he hasn't been circumcised. But he's a faithful person, he worships, he gives. He does everything that, that in a sense, pleases God. But he's still not reconciled to God. That's where Peter comes in. But Peter has to go through some changes before that can happen. So uh, he's respected by all the Jewish people. And a holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. Now that's a big step. Number one, Peter, it's not his house, so it's interesting. He says, yeah, come on in, you know, hey, we got four more, three more people for dinner. Uh, Yeah, thanks, Peter. You know, the preachers do that, just the way we are. The next day, Peter started out with them. We're in verse 23. And some of the brothers from Joppa also went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea, so it was a little bit of a a journey. So on that day, you know, you wonder, what did they talk about? Peter's getting acquainted with these guys. He's, you know, he's, he's kind of getting the back story. And so as Peter, uh, as uh, Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius has got a full house. It's not just Cornelius. It's like friends, relatives, everybody. You know, it's, it's family, right? It's family. His whole family's there. Talking with him, Peter went, out, went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, now this is where it gets, this is hard to hear a person saying this, all right, if you, if you understand what Peter's saying. They were all aware that Jews didn't go into the houses of non-Jews. Everyone understood this. Peter was breaking a big social taboo to go into Cornelius' house. Cornelius was welcome to go to the synagogue. But the synagogue worshipers, the Jews, weren't welcome to go to Cornelius' house because they would be defiled. So Peter's walking into this situation, and here's what Peter says. Now, you know, it does seem weird. The synagogue rulers are willing to take Cornelius' money, but they won't go to Cornelius' house. Doesn't that, I mean, this is the thing about wherever there's problems, something is weird, but everybody just kind of accepts it. Oh, yeah, it's okay for things to be this way. Peacemakers look at things and go, this is wrong. This is not God's will. I'm not going to accept it. I mean, it's, it's a testament to Cornelius' humility of heart that he was tolerating this. This guy was a big shot. He called the shots. He was well paid. He was well respected. He didn't have to help the conquered people, the Jews. He didn't have to give to their poor. He didn't have to help build their synagogue. He didn't have to do anything for them. And despite all of that, think of how they were treating him. Now that was what they thought was the right thing to do. It wasn't. So Cornelius Peter says you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him But God has shown me That I should not call any man impure or unclean And he's talking about in a ceremonial sense Okay, he's not talking about in a moral sense Because Cornelius was morally impure and unclean just like Peter had been morally impure and unclean All right talking about two different things so So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection, (laughs) right? He came without raising any objection. He didn't tell him the whole story. But he was kind of humbling himself there, at least to some degree. So he said, may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. So it's the same time. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered or noticed your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner. He tells another story. And so he says, now we are all here in the presence of God. You get that, what he says? He says, God is here. This whole thing is about God. God's at work. So we're here in God's presence to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. I don't know if you've ever had those kind of experiences. I've had a, a few in my life where there have been divine appointments like that. And when you're in the middle of a divine appointment, you know God is in this. God is setting this thing up. It's just not your agenda. You're not just into your thing. And this is the thing about peacemaking. God is in this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God or sons of God. Meaning, God is in the peacemaking. Wherever there's alienation, God is in the middle of that working to try to end it. But God works through peacemakers. Jesus was the peacemaker, but he works through us as peacemakers in these situations. But we have to have eyes to see what's going on and what our role is and what we have to do to change it. So Peter, uh, uh, I'll stop for a second here. Let me, so Peter learned, I'll go through the first couple of points there. Peter learned to value Cornelius and Gentiles. But he had to learn to value, he, he was brought to value the Gentiles kicking and screaming. You see that? So Peter is an apostle. He's hand-chosen by God. He has qualities and things besides his weaknesses that God sees would be important in a leader. Yet still, Peter is resistant to God's will in the area of peacemaking. We are no better. We aren't. We have all kinds of justifications for why we tolerate alienation. You have them, and I have them. Peter had his. And we're blinded to how, no matter what we say in our head, how little we really value these people that are on the other side of some divide from us. Maybe a political divide. Maybe a personal incident. There's lots of... uh, I'll give you a couple in a second. People on the other side... In our minds, no matter what we say, we always think they're, they're worth less than we are. Peter had to see, don't do that. God said, don't do that. Don't think that way. See them as people like you, just as valuable in God's eyes as you are. Peter had to, had to, God had to get this point to him in a dramatic way. And he had to keep speaking to him to get him to press through this barrier you feel a barrier. The first barrier you feel in peacemaking is in your own heart. It's in your own heart. Alexander Sholzhenitsyn said, the dividing line between good and evil runs through the human heart. And that's a hard thing for us to accept because we always think the reason why there are problems is because it's out there. It's not. It's here. It starts right here. When the when the Jews were all focused on hand-washing and regulations like that, Jesus said, you're not defiled by what you touch. You're defiled by what comes out of your heart. It's what's in our hearts that's defiled. That's what God's trying to show Cornelius. But he's showing, isn't this interesting? Cornelius is going to hear the gospel from Peter. The gospel is how your heart can be changed. The gospel is how God changes the human heart. The only way God can change, the only way the human heart has ever changed is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter is the representative who's supposed to proclaim that, and Peter's heart needs to change, even though he's been born again, and he's proclaiming the gospel. The depth of our brokenness is way beyond what we think. And there's there's two truths that you should keep in mind all the time. Number one, you are, like I said a few about a month ago, you're more loved by God on your worst day than you can ever imagine. But you're more messed up than you think. And we have to hold on to both those. Because some of us just think, oh, I'm so messed up. Everybody's so messed up. You know, that's the truth. That's true. But the counterbalancing truth is we're more loved by God at our very worst than we can ever imagine. That's what the gospel is about. That's what the good... That's what the whole parable of the prodigal was. At the guy's the worst day in that guy's life, he was more loved by God than he could ever imagine. But he was way more messed up than even he knew. And, and all the bad choices he made had done more damage than he'd even imagined because he was just thinking about himself. But he affected a lot of people. Peter was the preacher of the message that your heart can change... But he, the, the message of peacemaking constantly has to start in our own heart first. That's why Jesus said, when you see your brother has a splinter in his eye, don't start with a splinter in his eye. Start with a beam in your own eye. Because once you deal with that, then you'll be able to see well enough to help that person with their splinter. So see how there is there's, there's this consistency all the way throughout Scripture. We start with what's in our own heart, just like here. So he had to learn to value him first. Secondly, he had to learn to identify with him. And to identify him, oh, hold on, let me ask you a question. Who is your Cornelius? Who's your Cornelius? Just sit with that for a second. Who have you written off? You want to know how, how you write people off? If you've written people off, uh, 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 they're dead to you. You don't have anything to do with them anymore. There's a distance. That's what alienation is. It's distance. It's avoidance. I don't think about you because if I think about you, it hurts. I get angry. So that's where you start. You go, who's my Cornelius? Who is it? You you check out what's going on in your heart and you can look at your behavior. Your heart and your behavior line up real well. We don't like to look at it, but it's true. You know what? Surveys say, (laughs) the game show, surveys say That among evangelical Christians, we are a real asset to our communities. There's all kinds of research that says evangelical Christians are a tremendous asset to their communities. But it also says that evangelical Christians really struggle with three groups of people in every community. They struggle with Muslims. They struggle with LGBT folks. And they struggle with people who are racially different than them. Black evangelicals struggle with white evangelicals. White evangelicals struggle with black and Latino and other evangelicals. Strange. Brothers and sisters would be like that. It's a blind spot we have. And we don't say to ourselves, they're less than me. But our behavior says something. So we all have these Corneliuses. Who is your Cornelius? Because that's going to be your takeaway today. This is about you moving towards your Cornelius with the heart of Jesus. Secondly, Peter identified with Cornelius. He broke religious rules to go to Cornelius' home. He moved towards him. We said last week, Jesus identified with us, he was numbered among the transgressors, he wasn't ashamed to call them brothers. The incarnation is where God, the uncreated God, took on flesh and blood and identified with us. And this is the test of if we're going to be a peacemaker, we have to look at those people and say, I'm going to identify with them. Jesus became an infant, he became vulnerable. He took on the shame, he took on the difficulties, he took on the struggles of the people with which he identified, all of us. He took on their te- our temptations. He took on our humanity. He took on our limitations. Do you realize that? Our limitations. Jesus was tempted. Do you know how you all know how miserable it is when you burn with desire for something that you shouldn't want. Jesus, the almighty son of God, to identify with us, to make peace, felt that. He didn't sin, but he felt the draw of it. He was sleepless. He was hungry. He, all the things we feel, he felt. Peacemakers have to identify with the people with whom they reconcile you see that? Third, okay, so how do you identify with your Cornelius? How can you do that? It's a dangerous thing to do. It's a tricky thing to do. Jesus hung out with the sinners, and people thought he was morally compromising, but he wasn't. There is a balance here. In identifying, we don't identify with their sin, we identify with the people. And let's just take, for example, because I like to use this one, Let's just take the LGBT community. How do you identify with a community that in many ways is as antagonistic towards evangelical Christians like ourselves? How can you meaningfully identify with them like Jesus would if he was here? Jesus would not have been content to say, I don't want anything to do with you. You know, you're trying to take away my rights, you're trying to destroy my country, you're morally perverse. Blah, 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 blah. I'm staying away from you. He, he didn't do that with any of us over anything. Like that particular kind of moral brokenness is any different than the rest of our moral brokenness. He moved towards us. How do we do this? How do we do it? We have to do it. We have to do it. Peter knew they're not going to get the gospel if I send them a postcard. They're going to get the gospel if I act like Jesus. And so I need to identify with these people. And I need to connect with them in a way that they feel like I identify with them genuinely. It's not just put on act. It is meaningful. Jesus didn't just act like he was human. He was fully human. This is an important doctrine that has practical implications. And you may think, this is really... You're playing with my head, John. <laughs> You're taking me here. I didn't think I was going to go here. I don't want to have anything to do with LGBT people. I go, why? Do your other friends who are sinners, are they better than them? Well, theoretically, no. But that's where you got to stop and go, yeah, what does that but mean in your head? What does that but mean in your head? Why do you see... One group of sinners is worse than another one. When God doesn't, I don't mean that some behaviors, uh, you know, a drug selling, murderous, violent gang member is going to have more damage than and do more moral damage than a shoplifter. I'm not blind to that distinction. I'm just telling you, before God, sinners are sinners. We're sinners. Saved by grace. Now, we're the righteousness of God in Christ. I get that, too. But this has to do with how we live this out. So Peter went to the guy's house. He shared the gospel. I won't won't read that part to you. He shared the gospel, and at the the money moment, he says, all who are... I'll read this. It says, uh, all the prophets testify about him, Jesus, in verse 43... That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, heaven broke open. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, their eyes whoop. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished. That means surprised, shocked, caught completely. With their pants down. Like, what is going on here? You know, we've kind of gone with Peter up to this point, but how could this happen? Because it says they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Get that even. We could put it in here even on the LGBTQ community, even on the Muslims. Even on whatever racial group, even on the illegal immigrants, even on whatever. The, the, the Democrats, the Republicans. How could the Holy Spirit fall on, you know, uh, the, Holy, uh, on, on the Republican convention in, in Cleveland on Monday? Wouldn't that be wild? Some of you are going, that would be unbelievable. You would be like these people. They heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Do you see that? So, Peter learned to fight for the other, for Cornelius. Peter showed fight by being courageous in obeying God. Even when it was socially not approved, he was courageous. You know, we think of people like Martin Luther King. If you haven't seen movies about Martin Luther King and, and the, the civil rights movement, uh, you, sh- you really should. It's hard for us. We're so far removed from it in the 60s. Some of you, you know, you weren't even, your parents, some of your parents weren't even alive in the 60s. Uh, but I was 10 years old in 1965, and I remember seeing it on TV. And I remember when Martin Luther King was shot and killed. I remember that I didn't understand it. I was just too young. I was too white, too. I didn't understand what black people went through. After church last week, uh, Coin, who you guys know, some of you might know Coin, Coin is uh, from Nigeria, but she's, uh, well, she's got a green card. She lives in the United States. she'd never know she's Nigerian. She speaks completely perfect English, but she moved over here when she was a, a kid, and she came up afterwards, and she said, John, you know, what you were talking about today, she said, I had to go through that. She said, when I came here, I wasn't black like the black Americans were. And so I listened to black Americans and I just thought, I don't haven't an experienced anything. Like I grew up in America. I didn't experience any, a lot of what they experienced. And she said, and, I, and then at a certain point in my life, as she got a little older, she started experiencing certain things. She said, I had to go through this conversion because I was walking like I'm not, I haven't been treated. I don't have a history of, slavery. I don't have, you know, all the, all the other grievances and injustices that blacks have experienced. But all of a sudden, I'm experiencing it here as a Nigerian, as an immigrant. And she said it was a weird experience to live this out. And she's on vacation this week. I was going to have her kind of share a little bit about that with you guys, but, but she's out of town. We don't get what other people experience. We just don't. Peter didn't get it. And Peter was courageous, though. And he asked questions, and he listened. If you're going to fight for other people, if you're going to fight for your Cornelius, you have to be humble. And you have to, not just courageous, you have to be humble. And you have to ask questions, and you actually have to listen. The, the, there's a, there's a, a story uh, it's told in different forms. I, 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 say, I say it every so often, but uh, I heard David Foster Wallace in a, in a short story uh, say this. He said that, that uh, uh, there, were, there were three fish in the ocean one day. There was a really old fish who was cruising along and two young fish swam past him and he said, hey boys, how's the water? A- and they they swam past, and they turned to look at each other, and they said, what's water? We don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And it's hard to hear you don't know something, because you think, I know everything. I know everything I need to know. Peter didn't know what it was like for Cornelius. He asked questions. He engaged him. I, I, I imagine, even though it wasn't part of the story, the one-day walk between uh, Joppa and Caesarea with the three friends of Cornelius was probably an enlightening experience for Peter. He seemed to be a humble guy. He had blind spots like we do. I don't question any of your faith. We shouldn't question anybody's faith who goes through what Peter went through because we all go through this. We don't know what it's like to live in someone else's shoes. And peacemakers have to learn, though, what it's like like by identifying so we can fight for people. And how is God asking you to fight for your Cornelius? So I've asked you, who's your Cornelius? How can you identify with him? How can you fight for them? This is question from God to you. This is a legitimate application of this passage for your life today. You're here to hear this. God has your attention today. He's trying to make you more like him so you can be a peacemaker. Peter was willing to live like everybody else up until this point. And Gentiles were over there. Non-Gentile Christian Jews were over here. God kept putting his finger in Peter's chest and saying, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. There's three men looking for you. Go with them without any qualms. Boom, boom, boom. And there was all this pushback from Peter, and then Peter finally got it. That's the way we learn. Don't beat yourself up, but recognize you've got blind spots. We all do. That's why this story is so fertile for us today in our particular culture, in our particular cultural moment God's trying to get us to see something. We can, can we can still fight against God's desire for there to be unity and diversity.